If you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. So thankful to hear your voices this morning. Um, often reminds me of when Peter is asked if he's going to go away too, and his response is, "Where, where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life." That is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. There's the reality there that there isn't anywhere else to go. But what a joy it is to come into a place where the words of eternal life are put to music and we get to sing them uh, to one another in so many ways. So, so thankful uh, for your voices this morning. With John chapter 3, and if you'll remember... Uh, last week I made mention that the impulse when we get to John chapter 3 is to rush to verse 16. Uh, That's where the good stuff is, right? And there is good stuff there. We don't want to negate that, but the reality is there's there's a whole lot of uh, wonderful truth that is encapsulated here in John chapter 3. And I don't want to start a big argument here, and I I don't want to cause unnecessary division But I'm not the one who started all of this, so I I, I do feel a need to kind of point out why we're going to read these first 15 verses uh, in the fashion that we are. How many of you have a red-letter Bible? I I have one at home. Um, I, I, to be quite honest with you, until I was later in my Christian walk, didn't know that there was anything but a red-letter Bible. But here's the problem with the red-letter Bible. Uh, there's conjecture in the Red Letter Bible. Uh, because we don't, it, the Greek language doesn't use quotation marks. Uh, we don't know exactly for sure where uh, the, these are the words of John or the, the words of Christ. And, and then part of the problem with the red letters is that some have tried to use the red letters to emphasize somehow that the words that are in red are more important than the words that are in black, when in fact it's the spirit of the triune God who has inspired all of these words, whether it's Jesus who's saying them or John who wrote them. Um, Now what I do uh, think is that when we get to verse 16, and I'm not solid on this, so you're going to have to give me time as we continue to work our way through, but starting in verse 16, you have more there of a commentary from John then you have the actual words of Jesus. This is a a direct dialogue up until verse 15. And after that, I think what is going on is that John is explaining what happens in these first 15 verses. So just put that in the back of your mind. That might cause more questions than you have answers at this moment. That's okay. Join the club. Uh, but, but, But that should cause us to slow down and I think think through the text a little bit more. What we have seen up to this point is that Jesus has come in and He's disrupted everything to this point. There's the Jewish nation that is simmering in messianic expectation, a desire for the kingdom to be established. 
that, that, that their national identity would be renewed in some way. And here comes Christ in the middle of all of this darkness. That is the context of John. A dark world. And what we find in verse 9 of chapter 1 is that Jesus disrupts that darkness. And thank God that He has. John chapter 1 verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then in verse 14, we have that fuller explanation And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of salvation and revelation. Which, by the way, brings me to another point. I need to fix something really quick. Do you remember the four? uh, Verse 14 is very strong in Trinitarian language. The only way that we understand uh, chapter 1 of John is to have a Trinitarian theology, and I gave you... if if memory serves me correct, four uh, different propositions and a syllogism that that give you the doctrine of the Trinity. I've been thinking about it, and I I think I may have left you with the potential to become little modalist heretics, and I don't want to have to deal with that, so we're going to fix this. Uh, The four propositions I have given you were these. That God is one, that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and that the Spirit is God. Now you can believe all four of those things and still believe in a modalism where ultimately each person of the Godhead is just expressed at different times and they're not really distinct from one another. So the fifth proposition that I think you have to hold on to to not fall into heresy is that each one of those persons is distinct in their being. Uh, they're, they're not just single apparitions at different times. They are all co-eternal, co-existing, distinct persons in the Trinity. Now, if you take those five propositions and you put them in your brain, and you can wrap your mind around all of them and say, I understand, you're wrong and you need to start thinking again. The Trinity is above our apprehension intellectually. And I think that should tell us something about who the living God is. But what we have here is that Jesus has come into the darkness and He is the full revelation of the salvation that God had planned before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 29, of course, John the Baptist points That Jesus is the only propitiator. He is the only one who can bear the the sins of man when He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's not a universalist statement. Again, that is a statement that He is the only way that we can be reconciled to the living God. He is the only sacrifice that completes the sacrificial system. He's the only way that we can once for all have our sins atoned for, have them taken away. And then we went on and Jesus again, He disrupts, and in a very kind way uh, to this bride and groom, He disrupts the wedding in a good way by taking water and making it wine, uh, doing a sign that points to His divinity. Uh, And then Jesus goes into the temple. The Lamb of God comes at the time of the sacrifice and He upsets everything. The tension here again is growing and growing and growing. And then we come to verses 23 through 25 that we dealt with last week 
in chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There are two parts. There's man's part and there's Jesus's part here. And some believed, and yet Jesus doesn't entrust himself to these that we find here because he knows what is in them. He knows the beguiling reality of their sinful, darkened hearts. But the glory that we found in this text is that to you and I who genuinely believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation and on His name alone, He has entrusted Himself to us. And in fact, what He's doing as He has this discourse with Nicodemus in verses 1-15 through through 15, is He is entrusting Himself to Nicodemus. He is revealing Himself fully to Nicodemus. So with that in mind, would you do honor to the reading of God's Word as we stand this morning and read these first 15 verses, focusing primarily on the third verse. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This is God's Word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before You so thankful for Your grace, so thankful for Your Word, so thankful that You've entrusted to human sinful hearts the message of the Gospel. So thankful that You have taken us from darkness into marvelous light, that we understand the joy of knowing You, of communing with You, and of living our lives to glorify You. Father, would You write these eternal truths on all of our hearts. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. Now again, we've been rushing through the text to this point, so I'm going to pump the brakes just a little bit here and deal with a verse, um, tempted just to deal with a word, um, 
uh, here what we have is a bold declaration in verse 3 of the problem that humanity faces apart from the grace of God. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what we have in these 15 verses is a declaration of the gospel uh, in, in its fullness. Now, we need to remember that that John chapter 3 isn't where the gospel enters in. Again, again if, we're too, if we're too impatient, and if we're just living on the heels of the syllabubs of, of modern type religious thinking, we're going to think, boy, the gospel is, is really in John, in John 3.16, but he takes a little while to get there. That's not true. Uh, again, John begins with a punch. He, he begins by, by claiming and, and, and asserting the reality that God, that Jesus is the pre-incarnate second member of the Trinity, the one by whom all things are made. And in verse 13, we have a clear and explicit uh, explanation of what we find in, in verse 3 in chapter 3. And that is that we all must be born again. In verse 13 of chapter 1, John writes, uh, we are who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The gospel is right there in chapter 1. The, the good news that it is God and God alone who regenerates the fallen hearts of men and builds His kingdom for His own glory is found right there. We, we don't have to get into to verse 3 to see that there is a need for the regenerating power of God in our Lives and some might think, well, uh, maybe, maybe this is the first time that we've even understood that reality that, that we need the gospel. Friends, Genesis chapter three verse fifteen gives us the cue of the reality of the gospel. One of the things when we come to John that we can't, we can't, we can't forget is the reality. That God sending His Son into the world was not His plan B. It was not the oops of the cosmos when, um, when Adam sinned and God said, Oh no, we need our backup quarterback. Jesus, you're going to have to go do something. That's not what's going on here. The reality is, Jesus is before all things, and everything that is came into being so that we could see not only that God is Creator, but also that He is Redeemer. Everything that has happened, what Brian shared with us this morning is so true. Listen, I've heard people from time to time say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to find Adam and I'm going to give him an earful. Because all of this sin wouldn't have had to take place without Adam. And that's true. And, and that's real. Uh, that, that, that there, there is a, a man, on the man's responsibility side of that, that's, that's true. But on the other side of that, uh, the reality is, in some measure, we can thank Adam because we know Jesus as Redeemer because of the reality of the fall. Uh, Adam's sin is not outside of the economy of God's sovereign will for the universe. Now, God is not the author of that sin. And so maybe when we walk into the gates of heaven, we can slap Adam upside the head just a little bit. I think we'll be beyond that point in our sanctification by that time. But, I understand the impulse. Uh, the reality is, the gospel, God's showing His power both in creation and what I want you to see in the text this morning in regeneration is, is all throughout Scripture. 
What God is showing us in the Word is that He created all things and that nothing is recreated back into, uh, into a regenerated, worshiping, born-again Christian without His power. God is both Creator and Redeemer. Ultimately, what we find here in verse 3 is a context of who we are and what is in each one of us apart from Christ. When we read verses 24 and 25, but Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people, and He needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. If you read those verses and you think, boy, I'm glad that's about all of those bad guys out there and not about me, You've missed the point of that text. What is in Adam and what is in all of us, uh, this side of east of Eden, uh, is sin, is depravity, is wretchedness. And here uh, we've seen in the text uh, last week, uh, we've seen who Nicodemus is, that he's not just some random religious person, but here is Nicodemus. Uh, And Nicodemus of all people, I mean, the star religious person of his day in some sense, a ruler, a member of the Sanhedrin, a Jew of Jews, a a very notable person. This isn't just, oh, there's Nicodemus. Uh, We've heard the name Nicodemus, and probably out of context so much, that we misunderstand the tension that again is building here. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to anyone because he knows what's in them. And all of a sudden, Nicodemus shows up. And there's almost this inflection that you would think as a, as a first century Jew, well, Jesus might have had a problem with most men, but here comes Nicodemus. He's the man. I mean, he is. If you want to see a right spiritual life, an individual who is on fire for God, here's Nicodemus. This is the guy that has to be the one that in him there's not a problem. But there is a problem, a major problem. So we see a a, a religious man, a a leader of the Jews, an individual who was was known, but, but, but Jesus knows what is in Nicodemus as well. Now, they get into this direct discourse, and, and really what's happening here in, 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 in John is, is we've just come from, from verses 24 and 25, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And then what happens is over the next several chapters, Jesus gets into these dialogues with different individuals who have differing earthly material needs at the forefront, but he's demonstrating that they all have the same spiritual need eternally. We have Nicodemus in these 15 verses we're dealing with here. We have the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, the first 26 verses. We have the Gentile official in verses 43 through 53 of chapter 4. We have the man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, the first 15 verses. He's showing us what is in man by interacting with them. And so what we have here is the beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man. And again, not just any man. This is Nicodemus, a knowledgeable man, a powerful man, a Jewish man, a righteous, law-abiding man. The Jewish mindset 
was that they had been given the law through Moses. This was a big deal. And Nicodemus was one who, who was concerned with abiding in the commandments of God. He's a religious man. Nicodemus here again comes by night. And here is such a righteous, powerful, knowledgeable, religious man. And he's, he's coming under the cloak of darkness. And there has been left throughout the ages of the church a lot of conjecture about the, 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 the reason that Nicodemus comes at night. Is it because he's trying to hide from the other Pharisees or the Sanhedrin? Is it, is it because of urgency in his, in his heart and his desire to question Jesus? Again, I think he comes cloaked in darkness because there is a nod here to each one of us about the problem in even Nicodemus's life. That he has to face his own spiritual darkness, his own depravity. Verse 2 tells us, This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, we know that You are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, unless you, uh, these signs that You do unless God is with Him. He says, we know and we've seen the signs. Now he falls short, and, and Nicodemus is a, he's a really good relational individual. He knows how to lean into the conversation. Here is this miracle work, worker teacher that has upset the entire nation. He's just starting in his earthly ministry, and Nicodemus kind of just leans into the conversation, telling him kindly, we've seen the miracles, we've seen what's, what, what you've done, and, 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 and what he's doing is he's starting to, to lean into the conversation and he's trying to do, do it graciously. The problem is here that, that Nicodemus is falling short of the full profession of declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. He, he's giving him the title of teacher or rabbi. But he's not pointing to the reality that he is, in fact, the incarnate Son of God. And so Jesus answers him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Now now what is remarkable is that Nicodemus hadn't asked anything to this point, and Jesus gives an answer. Now there's an implied question. It is this, that that Jesus knew, and, and here is what I think is fascinating about your Bible if you are understanding what's going on. We've just been told... That Jesus understands what is in the heart of man. And Nicodemus says, we know that you're a teacher. That that no one can do these signs. And what is welling up in his heart are these implied questions. Jesus can see the questions before Nicodemus even speaks them. So we don't need them. Jesus will just answer the question before before Nicodemus asks the question. Isn't that amazing? What is being illustrated here in verse Three, as Jesus begins to speak to Nicodemus, is another sign that what has just been declared about him, that he knows what is in your heart, Sarah, is actually true because he's talking to Nicodemus, the most religious person of his day, and Nicodemus doesn't need to say anything. Our Savior perceives the question. So what is that implied question? Well, Nicodemus is here wanting to evaluate Jesus. Can you think of something more absurd than that? A religious man coming before the Son of God, wanting to put him under the microscope and interrogate him to see what kind of man he is. 
That's what Nicodemus is doing. The, the implied question is, who are you anyway? Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? Remember, there's a whole lot of messianic and kingdom ex- expectation in Jewish life here. And so, 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 so Nicodemus has come and, and he wants to know. And Jesus, Jesus responds. Nicodemus saying, he is, we, we've seen the signs. We know that God is with you. And Jesus stops him and says, buddy, you can't even see anything spiritual unless you're born again. I I want you to see the issue here. The the Jews wanted the the resurrection of the nation, the reestablishment of a physical kingdom. And Nicodemus, standing here, wanting to see if this is the Messiah who will bring about those things... Nicodemus is looking for a socio-political salvation. It's interesting to me how much overlap there is in the pharisaical tendency to modern liberals today. They want to, they want to see, and quite frankly, in super conservatives as well, theonomists and the like. They want to see in the here and now the physical reality of some material salvation. But what we are taught in this one verse is that the greatest need in our life is not socio-political. It's to have a regenerate heart. It's that we would be born again. He is looking for a kingdom of this world. The greatest expectation, beloved, listen to me. The greatest expectation of our eschatology should not be in the order of events. The greatest expectation of our eschatology should be in the cleansing of our hearts. Do you know what I'm most excited about, Dallas, in the end times? is that I will finally be glorified when I come into the presence of God. How exactly all of those events are going to come to pass, I have some ideas, but I have more questions than I have answers. And here's the problem. So many people pour over the Word of God and they miss their near spiritual need in reaching for distant things that they can't be absolutely sure of. And that's part of the problem of what's going on here. Because God had already told His people the, the end of what He was doing, and that is to make a people for Himself. In Ezekiel chapter 36, we find these words, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your unrighteousness. And from all of your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and, and will cause you to walk in my statutes, and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I will give your, to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Now there is, there is in that text a, a, a nod to a material, physical reality. But there is most emphatically in that text a reality that God is going to change the hearts of the nation. That, that is the most important 
thing. It's in fact what we find in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, when we heard this declaration. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. You see that, that eschatological drive to what John is saying? When we see Him in the final day, we will be like Him. The, the, the impulse, the, the emphatic nature of the text is not about the material on the outside. It's about the reality that we all need to be transformed. Because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. But that's not what's happening here. The, the, the leaders here in John are not purifying themselves. The, the Sanhedrin, the Jews, Nicodemus were not longing for purified hearts on the inside, but for better circumstances on the outside. To someone like Nicodemus to perceive the kingdom of God in this first century context meant that, your, that ultimately you would experience eternal life at the end of the age. And there was this strong impulse in the minds of the Jewish nation that no Jew, with the exception of those who were seriously apostate or who were radically wicked, would miss the kingdom of heaven because in their minds it was an ethnic reality. But we find here in John that, that salvation doesn't come. Look at verse 13. We are who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The reality here is that Nicodemus would have had a mindset that said, look, if you're a Jew, you are inside of the redeeming graces of God. But here, Jesus is facing a knowledgeable man, a powerful man, a righteous man, a religious man, a Jew of Jews, but he's looking him in the eye and he's saying, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. This verse is not to be taken out of its, its first century context. It's to be understood in reality that there is an expectation and Jesus is making a bold claim. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You have a deep need to be regenerated, Nicodemus. Well, what we find here is what we have already been told in Isaiah chapter 64. That every, all of our good works, whether it's in knowledge or power or righteousness or being religious, all of that is stained with sin. And we are separated from a holy God. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Jesus confronts this man who was good and righteous and holy in his own power, and he says, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And what's interesting, again, in the back of your mind, remember, Nicodemus is showing up to be the spiritual authority to discern who this Jesus is. And what Jesus is doing is he is flipping the tables on Nicodemus. He's saying, you come to ask questions of me, but you can't even discern the least spiritual 
truth without being born again. Now this is explosive. This is radical. This is the equivalent of someone who, who was the guy that, that, that several election cycles ago, was it Plumber Joe that got elected? I can't remember. Who was that guy? It's like Plumber Joe. Let's just take Plumber Joe for the, for the analogy. It's like he gets a plane ticket and he flies to Rome. He goes to the Vatican and he meets Brother Pope. Brother Pope. That would be a Baptist inflection if there ever was one. I was asked when John Paul II died, somebody, I, was, I just said I, I wanted to go into the ministry, and somebody said, would you like to be the Pope? And I said, I don't think they could handle me over there. That would unfold rather oddly if I was there. We would have fried chicken for the first time in the Vatican as a Baptist, but, and a potluck, but anyway. <laughs> what is happening here, before I digress too much, is this is a common individual. Jesus was not viewed as the Son of God at this point. We have the, 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 we have the benefit of John chapter 1 leaning into this, but you have to put yourself in this moment. And here is this carpenter, and he's walked in, and it's almost like Plumber Joe has walked into the Vatican, and he upends the Pope. He kind of shows that the Pope is inadequate, which he is, in understanding spiritual truth. That's what's going on here. This is absolutely radical. This is a major cataclysmic announcement that all of the leaders of the nation are not, in fact, great leaders. They're spiritually dead people. That's what's being said here. All of these religious people, all of the individuals who are working inside of this system, apart from the grace of God, apart from the regenerating power of the Spirit, are hopeless. They're spiritually dead. They're not going to be in the kingdom because of blood, because of, because of their religious ability, because of their knowledge. The perfect theology doesn't get you into the kingdom of God. Only the regenerating work of the Spirit of God does that. That is what is being said here. What is being declared here is the reality of our total depravity, that we are helpless. What is it? Listen. Every once in a while when we talk about the doctrine of total depravity, somebody will say, but I knew somebody that was really good. Terry's a really nice guy. And Bill, he, was, he, he, he did a lot of good deeds. Let me tell you something. Nicodemus was that man. He was probably kind. He was, he was intellectual. He was everything. He was the man of all men. And he shows up in the face of Jesus, wanting to see who this Jesus is. And Jesus perceives the questions in his heart. And what he finds in his heart of an individual who outwardly looks so righteous and so good is nothing but putrefying spiritual rot that cannot even see the kingdom of God. And he's the one who's been proclaiming the kingdom of God. That should be a warning to every one of us. That we have to humbly come under the text. That we have to humbly submit and not just pontificate what we think about the kingdom, but that we must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And what what an interesting declaration of the doctrine of total depravity that we have here. I love catechisms. And I I love almost, I I love all catechisms. Um, The Heidelberg here has this question But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and are inclined to all evil? And here's the answer to the question. 
question, are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good? That is good that is not stained with sin. And are we really inclined to every form of vice and evil? And the answer is beautiful and it is taken from the very verse we're dealing with this morning. Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Unless God does a miraculous work, as Jesus is doing all of these lesser signs of turning water into wine, uh, uh, of, of cleansing of the temple, uh, of, of, of interacting with, with, and all of these signs that are, enum- are, are not enumerated but are inflected in the end of chapter 2, the greatest of all signs is that the Spirit of Almighty God takes an individual sinner and regenerates him or her into a saint. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Our greatest need is that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And no amount of intellectual uh, argument, no religion, no ceremonial, no, no law. Uh, this is one of the things that drives me crazy in our day. Let me just, let me just take a short excursus here. Um, there's a whole group that says we need to reenact the, 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 the moral implications of the law. And I don't want to get too deep into this, but theonomy. That, 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 that ultimately, and part of this flows out of a post-millennial um, eschatology, that, that we need to establish the kingdom through setting up all of the laws. These people had all of the laws. They were in place. It didn't work. Why do you think it's going to work for you? It won't. I think it was John Rogers, and I'm going to butcher his statement, but he basically says this, that we impugn the living God by saying that He needs a metal sword, that is the sword of the government, to complete the work of His kingdom that He is in fact going to do through the work of His Spirit, the Word. God doesn't de- depend on us getting our governmental structures set up right. He-, he doesn't depend on our little schemes. In fact, you know what happens when we come up with little schemes that are just going to bless God in our own thinking? They generally blow up in our face. Uh, what we need is to be born again. The reason here, This verse is the reason why I'm not a theonomist. I'm a conversionist. You can have all of the right laws Dallas. You you can have every single law ascribed rightly. You can exercise the the sword of the state in accordance with all of those laws and not one person is going to heaven because you do that. The purpose of the law is to reveal to our sinful hearts that we're not able to keep the law. If Nicodemus, Brian, had understood the law appropriately, he wouldn't have shown up in the darkness of his heart thinking that he was a righteous man. He would have understood through conviction of the law, this is too great of a weight for me. I am undone. One of the interesting phrases that I find Jesus saying throughout Scripture to religious people is, have you not read? Uh, All the time. That should be an encouragement to each one of us to read our Bibles and to read it faithfully and carefully. Friends, apart from Christ, we all have a great spiritual need. And somebody's going to say, well, so you're saying that this is the first place, John chapter 3, verse 3, is the first place where we see the doctrine of total depravity? No way. 
The whole Bible speaks of this. And in fact, the first time that I could find is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. You'll remember this verse. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Argue your way out of total depravity in that verse. And I promise you, you will demonstrate hubris in doing so. We all have a great need. And it cannot be fixed by anything human. No learning, no religion, no works, no decision will ever save us. Jesus does not turn to Nicodemus and say, as Nicodemus is wondering, is Jesus the, is Jesus the Messiah? Nicodemus doesn't turn and say, brother, would you fill out this card and pray this prayer after me? He doesn't do that. Because Jesus, the God of the heavens, doesn't need you to fill out a card and He doesn't need to make it, you to make a decision. He will regenerate your dead soul and then you'll make the decisions that He intends for you to in His providence and in His timing. We all need this spiritual grace of being regenerated, being born again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom, unless you are born again. Jesus says, if, if you are going to know me, this is what's interesting. Here comes the man with all of the Bible knowledge. This is, I mean, y'all got to see this. This is the guy, this is the Bible answer man. Hank Hanegraaff hadn't shown up yet, and he's a nut anyway. Here is the Bible answer man, and he shows up to the Word made flesh. That's what's going on here. And the one that thinks he has all the answers interacts with the Word incarnate. And the Word incarnate turns and says, Son, if you're going to know me, you need to go back to Sunday school. You're going to have to be born again. You have to start at a base level because your perception of the Scripture is patently false. It's wrong. You've missed the entire intention of the Old Testament because the entire intention of the Old Testament is standing before you today. All of Scripture points to Jesus. Jesus is the fulcrum of all of the redemptive narrative. Think about that reality. Here is the teacher of the Jews, an absolutely righteous man. He knew the Word, but ultimately what we find, until you are born again, you can't come to a right conclusion about the Old Testament. You have to interpret all of the shadows of the Old Testament in light of the substance of Christ, in light of who He is. Until you see Jesus, you can't understand the Word clearly. It absolutely drives me bonkers. Sarah has learned graciously when to turn TV programs off in my presence. And one of them is if you have some Christian program where they hire a rabbi who, does, who claims not to be a Christian to open the Old Testament and explain it to the church. What?! That's like asking Nicodemus prior to regeneration to giving the sermon in the, on a Sunday on the Lord's Day. That's insanity, friends. Because you can't understand what the Old Testament is saying until you see the substance of who the Lord is. Jesus is the point of every text. Cynthia was telling me earlier this week that Brother Brillhart liked to say that you could cut the word anywhere and it would bleed. And isn't that true? Everything points to Christ. Everything leans in that direction. And if you want textual proof of that, you remember the interaction with those on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24? I'll read this to you. That very day, two of them were going to a village named 
Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that, that, that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went to them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them said, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in, there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all of the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of the company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found that it was just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. There, all that the prophets have spoken is, a, is leaning, is pointing to the reality of everything that has happened in Jerusalem in these days uh, according to Christ. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things to enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then you'll remember the climactic declaration that they make after Jesus departs from them in verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The right interpretation of the Old Testament will always lead you to Jesus. It will always lead you to understand His, um, His redemptive work. None of, none of Nicodemus' learning, none of his ceremonial works of the law, none of his righteousness, not his political status, not his religious position, none of that could save him. What John chapter 3 stands this morning to tell you and I is that none of our filthy works can save us either. It would take a miracle of Almighty God for you to see the kingdom of God. It's interesting too, if you look with me, this is demonstrated Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus asks in verse 4, look, look, look at what is being said here. Ultimately, what we, we find in Nicodemus' response is a validation of what Jesus is pro proclaiming. Because Nicodemus, in all of his learning, hasn't come to learn the truth, and he doesn't even understand what Jesus has pronounced in verse, uh, verse 3. You must be born again. In, in, in Nicodemus's mistaken understanding of Jesus's declaration of being born again he thinks that Jesus is talking about chronology and biology here is this brilliant man this this scholar par excellence and Jesus says unless you're born again you can't even see the kingdom of God and this this dear man's mind 
goes to chronology and biology. Birth happens in an order. There's nine months of gestation. Then the baby gets here. It grows. And he's thinking, do I have to... And this is rather crass. Do I have to go back into the womb a second time? And be, how, how does this work? How do, I, how do I go back in time and be born again? How can a man be born when he is old? Again, chronology. Can he enter a second time into his mother, mother's womb and be born again? But what Jesus is saying is not a chronological or biological statement. It is a spiritual reality. Jesus says is um, unless you are fathered, unless you are begotten, unless you are regenerated, and, and the word here again to us even in our language, it, there's a connotation of that chronology. Unless you are born a second time, and, and ultimately it is a second time, there is a chronological sense uh, in, in some ways, but the underlying Greek here doesn't lend itself to chronology, it lends itself to the to where the new birth comes from. It, it, the, the word again means from above. Unless one is born from above, he can't even see the kingdom of God. The issue isn't time. The issue isn't biology. The issue is redemption from the hand of a sovereign God. That is the issue for Nicodemus. And that is the issue for the church today. Unless one is born again, unless God regenerates your heart, Nicodemus, all of the works of the law, all of the knowledge in the world, all of the Bible study, all of the, the, the ceremonial cleansing will not save your wretched soul. You are so utterly depraved that the only way that you can understand the Word of God and understand what it means to be redeemed and see the kingdom is if God Himself were to reach down and to regenerate your heart. Now we'll find later in John's Gospel that God does that very gracious thing for Nicodemus. But it's not because of anything that was in Nicodemus. It's only that Nicodemus would stand as a sign to you and I that none of our works... None of our ability, none of our knowledge, none of our theology saves us. Only the grace of God redeems fallen men. I was listening to a tape of Brother Brillhart. You won't believe this. I had, I had Robert Frankie go get me the box of cassette tapes. For those of you that don't know who Brother Brillhart is, he was a faithful man uh, who pastored here for 30 years. Uh, and I had not had the opportunity to hear him preach until I got these cassette tapes out. That was also a nostalgic uh, exercise, you know, putting the pencil in and rewinding. That was cool. Um, all of the teenagers and kids in here going, what? And, and you're listening, praying that the machine doesn't eat the tape the whole time. I mean, it's a whole spiritual experience to play cassette tapes. Anyway, uh, the first tape that I popped into the cassette player... The very first words that Brother Brillhart says in 1978 is, well, we've been talking about the signs of, of, of Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 2. I'd like to turn back with you there today. And I thought, all right, Lord, I'm listening. It didn't just so happen that that was the tape without a label that I stuck in this machine and out came where we are. This is by divine appointment. And here is Brother Brillhart's statement that's so endeared to my heart. He says, I submit to you that the regeneration of a spiritually dead soul 
The changing of a sin-loving heart and life into a born-again child of God who desires righteousness and who will live for and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a greater miracle than the raising of Lazarus. God is still a miracle-working God today. May we give Him glory that that is true. And here's the question for each one of us. Have you been born anew? Have you been born from above? Has God taken, and it's never, it's never expressed by religious ceremonial things you've done. I ask people from time to time, are you a Christian? When I'm in the hospital and other places, oh yeah, yes, I made a decision when I was five and I've been baptized. None of that will save you. The question is, has God taken a heart that loves all of the things of this earth, all of the, even if they're religious, even if they're good, the, the things that are, are fallen, that, that are fleshly, that are earthly, has He taken your heart from loving those things to loving His name and to being willing to lay down your life for His kingdom and His glory? And if you can answer yes to that, then my friend, you have been the very object of a miraculous work of God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come trembling before Your throne today knowing that You are the great Redeemer and You are the great Regenerator, that You are the propitiator and the One who can save dying souls. Father, we stand on the brink of a society, a generation, an entire civilization that is crumbling under the weight of immorality and man-centered foolishness. And we are without hope in this dark world if it were not for You. But we have Your Gospel. We have the name of Christ, a light in a dark place. And so we ask God that You would do what only You can do and regenerate the dead hearts of fallen men. Not just for our comfort, but for Your glory. That You would display upon the face of the earth yet afresh and anew Your power to save. Father, in this place, we believe that it is only by Your divine providence and Your care and Your sovereignty that any soul will ever see heaven. As D.J. Ward said, if You had not chosen some, heaven would have none. And so this morning we pour our, out our hearts before You and we think about those lost loved ones and lost co-workers and those in our community who are without Christ. And Father, we beg that You would use us as instruments to carry the good news, to find those who have not found You and to bring them to You, to tell them of the good news of the Gospel. And Father, we ask that You would intervene and that You would change their heart, that they would come in repentance and faith and live their lives holy for You. And Father, we ask that in our own lives You would continue to mold us into the image of Christ. 